Welcome to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. You're not over there fapping or anything like that, are you? <laughs> no, but um, my cousin and his friend are playing Xbox, like, right in front of me. So you're probably hearing a lot of gunshots going off from zombies. Oh. Is that a euphemism? Is that a euphemism? Yeah, totally. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Crowd. Hi. 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 Hello. So much of a... What up? I forgot. I don't have any rap sirens for the uh, intro anymore. <laughs> um, but hi, yeah. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting edition of Thug Crowd. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to do the... We were talking about it. MG had mentioned it before. Just have somebody go and just introduce everybody and just say who they are, I guess, um, quickly. So I'll just do that. And then next episode, maybe somebody else can do that, too. So, from the top, we have A Trojan, Decoded, DNZ, If Not Pike, our guest, Jason Scott, Nux, Faith, Read Me, Solid, Shell, uh, Zodiac, and Sentry. Hi. I'm glad everybody here could make it. I want to hear that introduction for, for uh, about. For who? Well, <laughs> all right. Um, well, hi. Everybody. James really killing him there. Huh? Yeah, 56k modem is killing him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, everybody, thanks everybody for, for coming in and hanging out uh, a little bit earlier. Um, sorry to everybody, I'll say it real quick. You see our slideshow here, it's because we posted a uh, link to our show notes for the day, which uh, I'll post in the chat right now. Um, posted it on Twitter, and there is a, for some reason, so everybody who is interacting with this tweet, which I just posted in there in the chat, Twitch chat, anybody who replies to that gets their account temporarily limited, and they have to solve the world's easiest captcha to um, get back onto Twitter. Uh, we have, we don't know why, and we've just seen countless people who've been talking about it all day, and we still have no idea why. We don't do anything. There's no like JavaScript in this. There's no extra code. It's just literally a link to an NFO file. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. But, <clears throat> all right, I'll just uh, put it down real quick. Um, so, yeah, today's episode is about saving the internet, archiving, and all that fun stuff with Jason Scott from uh, textfiles.com and uh, Internet Archive. About 
Um, and so, yeah, but we're going to uh, go through a little bit. We have a couple of news stories we kind of just want to touch on real quick. Um, and then we'll get right into talking with Jason, who's already here. So, yeah, let's get started. Um, the first one that I thought was really funny was that a bunch of tainted crypto mining Docker conta uh, containers were uh, removed from Docker Hub recently. Did you guys see this? Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> It just, I knew this would happen eventually, but this one was downloaded 5 million times. Oh, yeah. jeez. Uh, have we seen the same thing on, like, the Amazon AMI thingy? Or, uh, you know, open, like, I know that uh, on OpenShift, uh, Red Hat's OpenShift, they were, people were, like, mining on it and before. But anything you can get free compute time on, right? Right. Yeah. Malicious stuff in uh, the U uh, Ubuntu uh, store as well, I think. Yeah, no, it's just it's interesting to see that this is actually being implemented. This is always something that you know is kind of sketchy when you say, "Oh, download this, uh, you know, random image that you didn't create and you don't know who made it, uh, but it's in the store, you know, storage um, for you." And yeah, it just seemed like this was inevitable. Um, but I'm surprised to see that they were able to get like $90,000 in uh, Monero off of these. Wow. Pretty wild. Insane. It would just be CPU mining too, just little little tiny instances. Yeah, right? So it's like most of these things are going to have what, like two, four gigs of memory and like just running on a very, very small, like, you know, think about the average, you know, system that you're going to pull up on there and run with Docker. It's going to be a very small container, so it's funny to see. Um, yeah, as well. I guess um, other services as well. If anyone else is looking, like Heroku app and uh, anything that you can just push a uh, you know Git client, that easy Git client, you push and get code execution for free. Uh, educational clouds. If you're at a university, you can get free accounts on your uh, university uh, cloud and get compute time. You probably shouldn't do this, but I guess it's free. Yeah. No. Definitely. <laughs> what? I said you can do it till you get caught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you um, want to make zero point zero bitcoins? <laughs> um, I think that might go against the fair use act, right? No, I think it's fair. Everybody's entitled to bitcoins. <laughs> <laughs> so, like Oprah, right now. Um. The next story that I had here I thought was kind of interesting. Um, there was somebody protesting the Article 13 um, by basically just sending um, pop-ups to people's set-top boxes that were unprotected on the internet. And so people were just sending, yeah, just I'll post the link in the chat here. Um, yeah, just somebody was just sending messages saying to call the uh, government officials and, and tell them to stop actually uh, trying to pass this. And did it over. So I don't know. It's a pretty cool uh, vector, I guess, if you're trying to spread the message to people. For an American like me, can someone summarize what this Article 13 is all about? I have no fucking clue. <laughs> well, basically, it, it was it was it has to do with um like how websites um can actually like uh have to they have to actually enforce copyrights and it's just a bunch of, of legal stuff that'll basically just make it harder for people to 
like, it's impossible to keep track of who's posting what on your con on your platform. That's just I don't know. It's a huge, huge extra thing that I've just I don't even know how it's actually going to be implemented. You know, it's like a it's like a DRM thing. Yeah, it's like um, I can show you. I'll post that link in here too. I was reading through this and it's still kind of like murky to me about what it actually means, but I think it's probably murky to everybody. Um, and there's just random little bits of legislation that are basically trying to make it so that whoever has some sort of you know uh, intellectual property online that they would basically put it on whoever is on the internet to be responsible for everything that everybody posts, which is inconceivable. Um, but yeah, so uh, I thought it was pretty cool. And then, so has anybody been following which is about the tap lock? Yeah, they got the torque screw on the side of it, and when you open it up, you can basically short the, short the battery and then use the motor to pull the shackle up. <laughs> it just, so was, was their response not, it's immune to anybody who has a screwdriver? That doesn't have a screwdriver? That was their reply to the lockpicking lawyer, right? Yeah, it seems just I don't even I don't even understand why they would not see that as a threat, you know, having just physical access to it, which it's not like you there's other examples of things where it says, oh, you need physical access to the device to actually leverage this exploit. Like, no, this exploit would only happen because there is a physical device protecting a physical thing. So if you're in there and you have a torque screwdriver, like, you can get into that. It's not, and they're not that hard to find. You can order one online for a dollar. I think you can get an entire uh, iPhone repair kit that comes with a set for about $3. Yeah, even better. But, uh, but I mean, you could just get some bolt cutters and cut it. I mean, if you oh, yeah. to that extent to open up with a torque screw, I mean, you're just going to use some bolt cutters and cut it off in, like, less than a minute. Yeah, that's a possibility, too. But I think it's funny when you have all these extra features that are trying to help it so that you can actually protect yourself with, you know, digital lock and just have it just, you know, one single screw is the reason why people can get into it easily. It just seems like bad practice. I mean, there, there was more than one vector, though, right? It wasn't just the screw. Oh, yeah. There was an app that it, uh, would spam it, and it would give you access in, two, like, two seconds. I remember there was a, a talk at DEF CON a few... Um, it might have been DEF CON a few years ago where... Uh, it's probably a while ago now. But anyway, this company had built this locks uh, in, for this internal, um, you know, like, government-type buildings, and they're electronic, so they could be open remotely through whatever, and all, all, all these, like, different security mechanisms. Um, one of them, you know, you could open it with a mallet, but the, one of the cooler uh, attacks against it was if you actually jammed your, um, like, a shim in between the LED and the casing and you pushed it in and twisted it, it would short something, like, one of the traces inside and open the lock for you. I thought that was pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, locks are just meant to keep honest people honest. Yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of what I had for the news today. But we also, um, Saul, did you have the other thing that you wanted to discuss about HP real quick? Uh, yeah, just one second. No problem. 
So yeah, there is an article posted today, um, or a, called a presentation posted today about HP's um, some embedded server software. Pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm gonna find the link real quick. So it's uh, in news. Oh yes, it's in news. Too many channels. So yeah, do you kind of want to walk us through what it what it means? Uh, sure. So uh, uh, more or less, uh, the BMC here. Um, it, there's a an embedded a an embedded operating system uh, within the actual hardware in and of itself, and there's a vulnerability in it that uh, would enable a remote attacker to remotely compromise the device and the underlying operating system. Um, so uh, it's uh, pretty bad, um, and uh, it affects uh, all of uh, HP stuff. So get patching. <laughs> yeah. No, the best part about it is that the the actual exploit that somebody had had to do the the bypass was just sending a bunch of A's and a curl request. How absolutely trivial it is! Like, is the best part. Yeah, it's like something that like you would try if you didn't know like anything else to do, and you just wanted to play with it and do that. Seems like <laughs> I don't know. The first thing I would think that you should test for is you know memory management, buffer overflows. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to keep the new segment pretty short so we can start talking to Jason because I know they have a bunch of questions for him and he's preparing and ready to go here. So I think we should just get into that if you guys are okay with that. I'm certainly okay. Not offended at all. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right. So yeah, um, just change the little header there. So hell yeah. Hi, Jason. Why hello? Oh, hello there. Yes. So, we are very, very happy to uh, to bring Jason Scott from Internet Archive and TextFiles.com onto our podcast, our humble podcast. Um, Jason has done, I mean, I don't even know if we can Google him, I guess. Or don't Google him, because Jason, I saw that when you do Google you, there is somebody else that comes up. And it's somebody who got sentenced to jail for 100 years. That's yeah, that's not me. That's not me. <laughs> I have a I have a Wiki, I have a Wikipedia entry. Yeah. You can go watch that. Yeah, um, I was really clicking through this this guy though, this other Jason. He's having a hard time. Well, you know, somebody randomly on Facebook invited twenty five Jason Scotts to a chat and then left. Name wasn't Jason Scott, and so we all sit and say hi. And some of us are doing really good, and some of us are not doing very good. But we're all named Jason Scott, so we're in it together. So that happens. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, he, but I just love that he wasn't named Jason Scott. Like, I need to make this. Some Jason Scotts left, and we declared that they weren't really Jason Scotts because real Jason Scotts would stick through it. And it was just good stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, um, do you want to kind of tell us what you've been up to lately? What I've been up to lately. So uh, for people who have no idea who the heck this guy is, um, I work for the Internet Archive. My official title is Free Range Archivist. I also do software curation. I also involve myself in a bunch of other projects for the place. And uh, before that, I was a Unix admin, but I also ran something called 
textfiles.com, which I still run, which is a com compilation of old bulletin board system era and perhaps now early web era text files, uh, along with a few affiliate history sites. And because of that work, I found that I needed to make a documentary. So I've made three documentaries, uh, one on bulletin board systems, and then I thought, well, that's too general, so let's do one on text adventures. So that one was called GitLamp. And then I did a documentary on DEF CON. And um, let's see, what else? I have a very famous cat named Sockington on Twitter. He has 1.2 million followers. Um, <laughs> what else? I uh, live in a combination of New York and San Francisco, travel between the two of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mostly immerse in collecting history, um, bringing stories to life, uh, working with folks to bring as much online as possible. Uh, I guess I'm also known as a co-founder of Archive Team, which is the activist archivist project. So we, per we first became famous for uh, taking a copy as much as we could of GeoCities, but we've done hundreds of sites since then. And so we're kind of like the weird SWAT team that bounds in and tries to duplicate as much of a site as possible when it's going down. And one side effect of that is now we are tipped off when sites are going down a few weeks before everyone else knows, and it's all very ugly. And so uh, that solves a, it's, it's meant to like solve a problem that apparently is never going away. Apparently we are committed to ripping down user generated and other content endlessly. Like there's no permanent sites anymore. So we're still around, we're still doing the work, but it, we, we had hoped that the internet was gonna clear this problem up. And uh, you know, we're getting up on uh, uh, nine years of this and it's still not being fixed. So those are my main things I'm known for. I'm sure there's other ones and I'm sure people are saying it. Um, but uh, but uh, you know, that's what I'm known for these days. Oh, that's awesome. So now, with we have a bunch of different questions, so I'm not sure how you, you kind of want to tackle this. Um, yeah, go in whatever direction you want to. Okay. I guess we can start from, I guess, the top of where we had made a little list and then try to go down and, and go through it sanely. Because um, it's kind of all over the place, but, I mean, we're all over the place. You know, you're all over the place, so good. So, okay. Step one, or, or first question is from uh, README here. Um, does textfiles.com still take submissions for zines and podcasts? Yes, people still send me new text files and still send me new items. Um, uh, the classic um, pretty text banner followed by an idiotic thing you should not do, followed by a call to connect to websites or bulletin boards is not made very much. It's usually made ironically. Yeah. Um, but very occasionally, right now, probably five or six times a year, someone sends me a 2000 whatever era text file about like, you know, how to wreck a blank or a extremely cramped and unthought out political position or some sort of historical overview or statement of nostalgia. And then I put it up in the uploads section of textfiles.com. Yeah. And um, not very often, um, 
bear in mind also that when I joined the internet, when I was working on textfiles.com, there were a couple projects that were growing in size and I was struggling in some ways to keep track of the space. And ever since I joined the internet archive, things are like, for instance, when I ran cd.textfiles.com, I started saying, wow, shareware CDs are really important. Let's put up their contents. And I think I put up Oh God, I want to say something like 85 or 90 CDs of the old days. Mm -hmm. And now uh, on the Internet Archive, we've got easily 15,000. So like the numbers are completely different for the archive. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of the projects that I was doing on textfiles.com, they just make sense to put onto the Internet Archive, you know, hundreds of thousands of magazines or posters or, or um, material and, and stuff can get lost so I try to highlight it but for instance a really obscure one that came out that kind of crosses across all of me was uh, the Kingpin of the Loft had actually recorded some voice mailbox uh, zines where people had used voice mailbox messages to leave you know like here's the new codes here's whatever he had recorded a few so I put them up on the internet archive and like there's no site for that like i pointed it out to people i bet people would have difficulty finding it because it's such a weird obscure thing almost nobody kept recordings of those things but it's yeah. up on the internet archive it's viewable it's streamable it's embeddable it's all there and i actually had someone contact me and say hey he mentioned some credit card numbers and i'm like oh no we better pay him back if someone buys a tennis racket with it but um <laughs> that's actually really funny that's uh you know, the, the kind of thing that people are worried about that. Um, there was actually a case in Denmark where uh, somebody actually ended up in, in, in the courtroom and they needed to show the, uh, um, to defend the case, they needed to, to show what the Internet Archive was and that uh, the credentials were from the Internet Archive. They no longer worked anymore. And this wasn't the live Internet, even though they'd removed them from the site. And, like, it took a, it took a while for that... Uh, Core process to let proceedings to complete. It's mm. interesting, then, you know, people just don't yeah. understand. No, it's funny. So, like, the Internet Archive is one of those that people either like super know about it, and to them, it's just there. It's just something they know about, like Reddit or Wired or or anything. And then other people will be like, "What do you mean? What is this? This can't exist. Like, there's no way." Or even funnier, like, oh, that's a government site, or doesn't Google own them, you know? But we're a completely independent nonprofit in San Francisco, uh, inside of a big crazy building, and we we host something between 30 to 35 petabytes of data, and we are completely free. We don't charge for access. We don't provide ads. We work basically off of um, grants and donations and everything else and we're 20 years old. So, you know, like people find out about it, they're like, well, what is this? And I'm like, oh, you know, if you go to archive.org slash TV, you can search the um, captions of every news program for the past seven years and find out what was said. And people are like, well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't really do that. And I'm like, I've got drives to prove it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like there's these weird projects like putting up, you know, and then, and then when I joined in 2011, I was put on a number of projects to work on, and I have a bias towards old computer hacker history, ephemera, and uh, oddity. 
you know. And so I started putting up things that were, you know, like when the thing when when the site first came up, it was very much like we're gonna have the classics, the books. And I was like, let's go put up like crazy rave flyers and weird zine, <laughs> weird hacker con recordings that were kind of scattered around. And let's put up everything we can find of, of the, you know, and 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 people have come through for me. Today I'm sitting here moving. I just moved uh, 2,000 different Polish magazines from the 1960s and 70s into a collection. And so it's like, great, bring, it more, you know, bring more of it. Um, and, and all the way down, I mean, I'm sure over the course of this show, we'll talk about some of the other weird things I've brought on there. But you know, the part of it that functions as the Wayback Machine is the one that's most famous to people. That's where the archive has been uh, capturing websites from the internet since 1995. And so as a result, it's capable of showing you what websites looked like for the last 20 years. And the answer is stupider earlier, lamer now. And uh, we can prove it over and over again. And um, people use it for nostalgia or proving things or gotchas or, or, or say in some rare cases, discovering that they lost some piece of data and finding that we took a picture eight years ago or something. So, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. I, I literally use it for people that's why it's not this to be like, I can only find this website on, on the Wayback Machine. Mm -hmm. so, very, very valuable. Yeah, no, it, it's been called a, a jewel of the internet treasures and uh you know when i'm here on site which is you know a few times a year it's fun to walk among this ridiculous place that it's in it's in a um it's in a 1917 uh christian science church that went defunct in the 1990s and then in the 2000s they sold it to my boss because it and he bought it because it looked like our logo and um we converted it into a partial data center, partial office space, and we kept the church area as a meeting area. So we have a working pipe organ. It's a very strange place. So it's fun when I think of people being on the Internet Archive and they have no idea what weirdness they're going through to get there. The pipe so, organ's an archive in itself, right? Hmm? Say it again? The pipe organ's being archived in itself, right? Oh, I've taken pictures of the pipe, the pipe uh, organ. It needs a tuning. It desperately needs a tuning. This is the kind of problems. So is the majority of uh, the Internet Archive's hosting on, on site in, in that building? Like the um, a, a portion of it is. It's actually, there are multiple mirrors in the California uh region there is a partial mirror in the netherlands there is a partial mirror at the library of alexandria egypt um and there's some work to try to come up with more and more distributed possibilities in fact we're um we're, we're hosting a distributed web conference in like august um where we've been kind of like helping you know, some of the more crazy technologists about the idea of like building a decentralized web that has like a different set of protocols, which may work, may not. But, you know, 
one of the things my boss likes is getting on the ground floor of experiments and seeing what comes out of them so that the next group of people can pick up the pieces and say, oh, they almost had it right. Let's add this part and so on. So most of it's here, though. So one of the questions, um, Rebe, that you brought up that I thought was interesting to ask Jason was, when did we reach a tipping point of content generation versus backup and storage space slash bandwidth? Because like 2006. Okay. Is that too is that too intense? 2006 <laughs> is when video sharing sites turn up the heat and start generating more content online than anybody can possibly keep up with. And yeah. then it's just a matter of degrees of pain. <laughs> um, you know, like I think it was, I remember at one point when somebody from YouTube at an event that I was at mentioned how they, people were uploading 24 hours of um, video every second. Now that's something like four weeks every second. Um, so it's impossible to keep up with that. And Twitter blocks some access. Facebook generates a petabyte a day. I mean, you, so, you know, you, a while ago, I looked into, wouldn't it be, you know, these software radios they have, like, look at the whole of the bandwidth, and then you kind of, like, move your thing left and right, you can, like, tune in. Yeah, uh, SDR. I thought it would be really neat to archive those streams, but the bandwidth results were crazy. It was, like, gigabytes and gigabytes a day, and so... Yeah. Ideally, what you do is you save portions of it in some way, and then somebody says, and then we get into the loop. We'll talk about that later, which is that once people understand our mission, they have great ideas about how we're doing it wrong. And, and, they, <laughs> and they assume, like, the great gift of the Internet is people learning about a subject for 30 seconds and then assuming everybody in that subject has been thinking about it for only 30 seconds. And so they come roaring in with their nine point plan for how we did it wrong and why are we so dumb we didn't think about it. And like a lot of these things, you know, after 20 years, there's things we can improve, but there's an awful lot that we made a choice and we know why we made that choice. I'm not saying we're above reproach or criticism. I'm just saying that the natural assumption of like, oh, you guys are doing it wrong because of blank. And it's like, oh, have you ever tried that for 10 minutes? It doesn't work. But, um, but so that's one of the things that happens. But I think it's also exciting that the archive is the kind of place that has these kind of weird experiments and things going on. Um, one of you mentioned this discussion, but you know, one day I started, I announced that we were going to archive every AOL CD, you know, every variation of every AOL CD. And <laughs> I was amused at the people who were blisteringly angry. Like not, you know, like if a guy puts a stupid thing on his head and takes off his shirt and dances in a sidewalk, you go, oh, have a great time. Not, how dare that man besmirch our sidewalk of our town, children walk here. Um, and it was funny to watch people who were like, eh, whatever floats your boat, go archive the OLCDs. And people who were like, literally like, this is a crime against uh, the nature of archiving. 
And, <clears throat> and then again, if they think about it for more than 30 seconds, AOL CDs were half of all CDs produced in the 1990s. They were, they were utilizing half of all CD production worldwide. That's and they produced... Mm -hmm. They were in everything, including like underwear. You go to Walmart and buy some underwear, and there'd be an AOL CD in it. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was Australia, everywhere. In Australia, we definitely had AOL CDs in the front of every computer magazine. Like I, I had a stack, and like it's called America Online. <laughs> my, uh, yeah, I mean, my for my birthday, bought me a whole stack and the display case from a Circuit City that was closing down. Yeah, one of the, so like there was a period in like the last where Steve Case and his head of marketing happened to both make some comments about this. And what had happened was, was that AOL, I'm going to get the numbers entirely wrong, but it was like AOL had like 250,000 users in the early 1990s, like 91 or 92. And then they were like, how do we, you know, how do we want to fix this? And they made a decision, and the decision was like it's worth. It was either seventeen or I think they were willing to spend seventeen or twenty, and it might have been as dollars for every new sign up. Like they made some budgetary decision, like we will pay this amount for you to sign up. So, you know, we want to increase this, and they came up with let's just mail out CDs to the point that you cannot not see a CD. And so they spent whatever millions it was, but they gained like tens of millions of users from it. Like it's a roaring success. They would have stopped if it wasn't. And there's like a weird archeology span in it. They produced 5,600 different types of AOL CDs. You can see all sorts of A-B testing. You can see weird marketing approaches. You can see the later ones where they say, come back. You know, like it's like the one saying, come on back to AOL. We know you've long ago decided we're garbage and left, but please come back. We, we got better. And um, so with so, the CDs, the AOL CDs, sorry, with the, like how, how much sure. data was actually on them? Like are it they depended. So some of them, so an average CD, so the, the functional thing that would get you started on AOL was probably 30 to 40 megabytes. Like that could be the bare bones. So, um, in fact, I think there's a reduced version of floppy initially, but then they made it that it was like 20 or 30 and it was preloaded. A lot of that is like preloaded AOL content. So that way it doesn't have to um, re-download certain icons and sounds. Um, but they would load it up with affiliates um, after a while. So it would be like, oh, here's a new Sierra online game you can play three levels of. Here's a new song here's a whatever and and it would also be on the cd so they would fill some of them up some of them would still be 20 or 30 megs um it depended wildly uh one of the things i loved seeing is they would have two that went out at the same time and one would say 40 free hours and the other one would say 30 free hours and have a sticker attached to it saying 10 extra hours free um so they were doing all sorts of tricks to do this. And, and yeah, they had all sorts of weird content on it, which made some of them very unique, worth studying, made them worth imaging, made them worth putting on the archive.
I feel like AOL CDs were a huge driving factor in, in just people upgrading their computers so they could have a CD drive in the 90s. Oh, yeah, that and MIST. Um, it's, it's obvious that, that like MIST causes a drive, and AOL causes an increase in CD-ROM drives. I mean, not to not not to wool gather about you know a specific period of time, but like people very rapidly compress history. I have found I found this out when I would interview them for historical stuff. Like people will kind of forget that like it was three years between point A and point B, and now we're at point G. Like they'll say like, oh, it was like this, then it was like this, and it's like you had three years you were suffering under that old way, and like for instance, if you ask people, when did um, when did modems go from you know uh, fourteen four to fifty six, and people will give answers, but the answers are almost inevitably when their when their family bought it. So exactly. it's a it's a very much a, uh, and like people forget like how crappy the experience of using a PC compatible machine was in the early 1990s that like they didn't all like they would be PC compatible with air quotes, but they didn't always get like the serial connection right or hmm. provide memory in the same way or, or have this idiotic turbo button uh, and so on. Like there's all this like weird artifactual history. And so Collecting, like all the rest of the stuff I collect, collecting the magazines, collecting um, uh, articles and pieces of software and everything else related to that time allows people to come later and really learn about it, like to be able to reference it. Like the game, the computer magazines that I have up, people now use for citation and reference because they'll say like, look, in, in you know, 1986, it cost $400 or $4,000 for a 10 megabyte hard drive. Look what it is three years later. And, and, you know, they use it. And this isn't stuff that you can just cite from a kind of a standard, like there's no scholarly work to cite for the price of hard drives in 1986 or five. So it's, uh, you know, for me, it's like the AOL CDs were actually my best example of people who thought it was insane and a waste and people who were saying, this is a really good idea and I'm glad you did it. Um, but now I get, I get AOL CDs mailed to me by the box load. So maybe I, maybe I'm the one who's getting punished. So Jason, now one, one thing that I, I, I watched some of your streams on Twitch before and I've seen your work when you're just, you know, just burning, rip it. You're, I forget what you're using image burn or something. Um, and trying to actually get, uh, you know, just imaging everything. But so now, what is the intake process like for when you get sent, say, like a thousand AOL CDs, for instance? What happens? Right. Like, what process do you have to go through? Do you delegate these tasks? How do you divide up your work? How do you prioritize? Because it seems like all of us here tend to like really sort of hoard this sort of information. And it's not, not to the extent that you do, of course, but we, we you know, even I, on my small level, and other people I talk to, we, we get overloaded with crap. I mean, I have a Commodore 64 that's in mint condition and all these tape drives and laptops and things that I, like, you know, want to play with. But it's, it's like, 
do you get rid of it? Do you save it? Like, what do you do? And we just, I'd really like to know how you actually take in stuff because it's overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty intense question, right? Because people have, uh, people have an interesting relation to quote unquote old stuff. And like, for instance, there's an entire line of thinking uh, around um, like the value proposition. So, you know, you've got your, you know, 1977 Hamburglar glass that you got from McDonald's when you were nine. And there's a certain narrative that says, well, now you can dollars because there's only seven left. Like that's a, that's a, that's a narrative people think when they think of old things, they think of them as investments or mm-hmm. some kind of stock. Like you've invested by owning this old piece of crap and you've kept it in your attic and then you just go up and it's like glowing gold uh, dollar signs over everything in your, and, and, and if you don't, have like if that doesn't work um uh if that's not what they're for then people don't why you do it like why would you then keep a hamburger glass and then then there's other people for whom it's a it's a talisman like my first computer was a commodore pet so I still have my Commodore pet. I don't have any connection to it in terms of value. I mean, I may wake up one time and have find out that they're worth $10,000 a piece or they're basically worth 10 bucks. Um, it doesn't matter to me because I keep my first computer because I, I like having it around. Um, the environment in which I'd have to get rid of it would be one where I'd have to get rid of almost everything I own. It wouldn't be one where I would choose to. And so, like, that's just a talisman. It's just a memento, a piece of my history. I don't really have any connection to it. Now, if somebody was to, if I was to take a picture of it, and some particular, and this is all a hypothetical, um, and some particularly egregious, knowledgeable nerd contacts me and says, whoa, you have a a sub-1000 serial pet and they only made like actually 400 of those and they're almost gone and he's ever dumped the ROMs and maybe you could, I'd talk to them, but that wasn't why I did it. Like it would be a nice side bonus. Yeah. But I don't, I don't own it in the hope that that payoff happens either, that like it becomes a unique artifact. And then there's material that I'm collecting or others are collecting just simply because they're worried it's going to disappear. Like you see a stack of 2,600 magazines and you're like, oh man, I used 2,600 from the time I was so young and I have all these issues and I don't want them to disappear. So I still have a box of them. Plus I may look at them maybe. And so your relationship to it is one of like, you're saving it. You're probably never going to read those 2600s again, but you're keeping it because you don't want to, you want to do your part to ensure that there's a world where that always exists. And so that relationship is a different one as well, right? Like, and then sometimes that pays off very greatly. Has been putting up 
every rave tape that was distributed in, in Toronto. Like they kept every cassette tape that was being given out at raves and they have like 200 and uh, they want to do something and the archive's good for that. Put it, you know, put it up. And um, uh, then there's like a bunch of stuff where people are keeping it and they think it's valuable and it's not. Like it's not <laughs> historically valuable and it's not personally valuable. Like a really good example for this is National Geographic or Wired, which is the National Geographic of, of tech zines. They're beautifully made. They're wonderful to flip through. They are utterly valueless. There's way too many of them out there. Yeah. Like I'm not being arbitrary. I'm like, like, yeah, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these things out there. So, so if you're keeping a stack of them and they're heavy as hell, um, and, and you're, if you're keeping them because you're hoping to sell them someday, well, maybe that's going to be the case in 2100, but it's not going to be the case anytime soon. They're, they're ridiculously heavy. So if you're making your own life miserable in anticipation of a future where those make sense, another one is Byte Magazine. But yeah. I will tell you that we don't have a very good, perfect copy of a number of other titles that people, you know, like we didn't have really good scans of creative computing until recently. Nobody had scanned it. And then suddenly we have some pretty good scans. Um, enough for that, like most people to get the, the use of them, but they, I would have thought that before people had scanned wired, they would have scanned creative computing. Nope. It just didn't make it out there. So, um, if you're somebody who has kept artifacts, the hardest artifacts to find are the custom ones. Like you went to a user group or you were part of a hacking group or something, and you have these handwritten one-of-a-kind things you traded. Like those are going to be by their very nature rare, and you may even be nervous about them getting out. And my job is, of course, to convince you that nothing will happen even if it does. But the uh, main stuff of like, um, I don't know, let's go with like Assassin's Creed. Like people are like pretty dedicated out there to like archiving. Uh, or making duplicates or useful tradable versions of Assassin's Creed. Uh, keeping it because you simply want to deal with it someday would be a little odd to me. But I would definitely say that it would be in your, be in your best interest if you have a bunch of stuff and the only you're keeping it is because you are treating yourself as a time capsule for the, for the future that we have finally crossed the threshold. My assumption was, I always say about 2010, institutions started recognizing that technical history had a globally useful historical aspect. There were certainly places before that doing it, but I'm saying like now almost uh, a, a laughable amount will we'll now say, oh yeah, no, we'll take your old video games. We have recognized that that is as interesting and relevant as old magazines and old um, catalogs and old paintings and so on. So we've kind of turned a corner on it. So, I mean, I don't know how much of this helps a person. I mean, there are people who keep a lot of things and they just do. And 
I was certainly someone like that for a long time. And, and if you're keeping things, you're keeping them for one of several reasons, like I've mentioned, and, and taking a hard look and realizing that. Like if you're keeping your original magnetic disks of stuff you worked on, it would behoove you to treat them as valuable and to transfer them to a more um, uh, permanent medium or at least a less temporary medium. But if you've just got a stack of TV guides because your dad had them and you found a trunk of them and you think this must be valuable, it's probably a good time to look out into the world to say, anybody need TV guides? Because you shouldn't be burdening yourself keeping them in, as some sort of anticipatory deal. That's a really good point. <laughs> would you, would you say that uh, basketball cards are in that category? What would? Basketball cards. When everyone thought that the, uh, you know, the, the Michael Jordan Skybox card was going to be worth a million dollars in like 20 years. So there's certainly, okay, so we get into an interesting items. How do I put this? So the classifications I've put are for items in which, uh, let's, let's put like a 10-year gap on them. 10 years have happened. There's no promotion, there's no heat, there's no light around them. They're just on their own merits. Um, you know, like here is a prototype Kensington mouse. Here is a recording from the Pixar offices that somebody walked around and made in 1996 and then stored in his garage. Or here is a stack of baseball cards or basketball cards that people have bought 10 years ago. Um, you would look at them now and you might say, this is valuable, this is not valuable. Maybe I'll sell it on eBay, maybe I'll digitize because I think there should be a record. But then there's this other, it's like the plasma in the states of matter. It's not just solid liquid gas, there's this plasma. And the plasma is speculative arbitrary markets. That's a whole other thing. Beanie babies, pogs, um, Bitcoin, um, you know, with sneakers, you know, we're like an entire market is up and there's a bunch of people and they're throwing money this way or that. Like that's a, that's a different situation because as I am, I really hope people understand the objects are secondary to the market. Like they're not you're not trading sneakers. You're trading arbitrary chits of value that are being randomly assigned by maniacs. I mean, if I can get somebody to go out and get a bucket of dirt and bring it to me, and I can turn around and sell it for five bucks to somebody, I've just given that dirt $5 of value. But if I can turn around and market to you and say, yeah, thanks for the dirt, but if you get the dirt out of Lady Gaga's mansion and bring it to me, I bet I can get $100 for it. Because half of it is, it's, well, one-tenth of it is it's dirt. The other 90th is it's got this story 
Like, it's very hard to get it. And if you can find a moron who's such a big Lady Gaga fan that you can sell $100 of dirt, and then that person turns them into, like, 50 vials that they sell for $20 a piece uh, of Lady Gaga dirt, they've turned the dirt into $1,000. And so now maybe somebody creates a place for people to trade the dirt. Now we're all trading. Like this is, this whole world is like completely arbitrary. And then one day someone goes, Jesus Christ, it's a bunch of fucking dirt. And the whole market collapses. And suddenly in 20 years, you've got a bucket of dirt and you're like, oh, you won't believe how much I paid for that dirt. And now take away dirt, make it sneakers, make it Beanie Babies, make it Bitcoin, make it Commodore 64s, make it the, the Apple One, and you'll see what I'm, what I'm saying there. Like, that's a different thing. That's human beings being human beings. And, uh, you know, you can't collect as much as I have without understanding the nature of just how ridiculous we can be about things. So, so maybe there's a case where you can produce a story and sell a Commodore 64 for $800 because you're able to convince people that there's an extra value about it. Um, and maybe you're able to like whip together a bunch of stuff and tell a story and make it go. But I've held a $1,000 sneaker. It feels like a goddamn sneaker. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, I, you know, like, so, so, what I do, when, when a person comes to me, usually what they're doing is they, they, they're trying to end the narrative of their ownership. So let's see. So if you're a typical computer hacker and you're 36, you probably had your two heart attacks. Uh, you're trying to figure out like what you're going to do with your life. And you suddenly realize you have like two rooms of your four room apartment filled with things. And you don't want the things, but you kept them because you want to. So you go to me. And what you really want is a, is a narrative where you go, and at the end, I gave it to a museum. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. And so kind of my job sometimes is I will just take a person's complete collection of software. And then I'll go through it and say, okay, this is unique, this is not unique. And then I will donate it to other institutions who are trying to build collections and say, I don't need this, do you guys want it? And they'll say yes or no. And I start to build up a list of institutions that want certain things, like the Living Computer Museum in um, uh, uh, Seattle, uh, Seattle wants like old mainframes and mini computers. They less need people to give them Commodore 64s. They have like 300 of them because people just kept giving them to them. Um, and then there's places like the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. They have one of the largest collections of video games and I have donated or lent technically um, 8,000 magazines to them because I'm like, wow, I don't have to keep track of this. So they're keeping track of it. And uh, so I will divest to that. So that's, that's kind of, and then if a person has magnetic media, I personally love uh, uh, Apple II stuff, but I'll take anything and, and, and we'll image it. So like if a person gives us CD-ROMs, I'll image the CD-ROMs because I'm into that and I can do it relatively quickly. And then I have scripts that can then look at the CD-ROM and say, we already have it or we don't. Um, and then I scan it and then I store it in a 
physical warehouse in Richmond, California, where I have pallets of software that people have given us. And somebody will occasionally say to me, oh, you imaged it, or you should do this, you should do this better level of ripping or whatever. And I'll just go back and get it and redo it. But it's more important to me that the thing gets some online as fast as possible so we can even recognize the value as opposed to having a warehouse full of, I think there's something cool in there if you visit. Um, so I should stop talking for a moment. Hey, I have a quick question before we get too far away from the magazine stuff. Obviously, sure. digital media, you just rip, but for like physical magazines, how do you like that to be archived? Do you like maybe like a Heidi res like photo from an SLR or do you like it to be scanned black and white color? So I like in an, okay, so in an ideal world, a person takes a magazine, verifies that the magazine is mass market and other exists that is make sure that you're not like holding like the last press run of something split them that is split the binder and do a 600 dpi scan in full color into probably a tiff format and then put the the the, the debound pages into either a folder or a box for possible rescanning in the future. Um, that's what I like. Uh, every one of those can be compromised and often are. Um, you, the people will send me 300 DPI or people will send me uh, one without the, the, ad, the ad pages or they'll miss pages or they'll not debind it, which is fine. You shouldn't always have to debind, but they use a scanner in which it makes the pages curved. Um, but you know, I'll take a curved, somewhat smallish scan because it's proof it exists and it enables you to at least get an idea of what you're looking for. And, um, you know, I will take any quality scan and, and people will say, oh, the scan, I'm like, yup. But you know it exists now, and maybe if you think it's got value, we should go back and scan it even harder. There are scanners that will make it so you don't have to break the binder, so I'd like that more, ideally. But magazines, you chose to say magazines instead of books. Magazines tend to have really poor gutters. They really tend to do a bad job with how close to the binding the imagery is. Yes. And so as a result, they do these two-page spreads, and then you're missing two of the letters in the headline because they're so close. I don't know <laughs> what they're thinking. I should also say that there's pretty much no point in scanning any magazine published after 2009 because every magazine after 2009 has a digital edition that is very high res. I see them go by. I get them. Don't waste time on that. Like, don't be like, woo, I got, you know, I got People Magazine, August 18th, 2017. And it's like, nah, it's, it's all set, buddy. I'd rather people, and also, I mean, you know, sometimes people will come by with these magazines where you're like, I had no idea this magazine, this computer magazine existed. Like, it must have, like, lived and died 
did five issues, fell apart, and they put that up. And I don't care what resolution it is. We're all fascinated by it. Um, yeah. You know, and and then like you know, like there's all sorts of other mag cracker magazines. There's a uh, magazines that were like zines, literally like you know, uh, stapled photocopied paper for like a software group. I love getting my hands on those because they just never got the distribution. So the archive has thousands and thousands of issues of computer newsletters from user groups going over the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, you know, like if you go digging, we got a lot. And there's organizations and groups out there who are methodically um, doing this work. And I have everywhere from a super friendly to super chilly relationship with them. You know, they have different, they come, anybody who's going to spend the time to do an of uh, scanning of periodicals has pretty hard opinions on a bunch of things. So <laughs> they'll have a very hard opinion on putting it up on the Internet Archive or having me put it up or whether or not when they scan it, it's their scan and they should decide what happens to it. Like, you know, they have all these different philosophies and they're very hard on them. But other ones, I'll make arrangements with them and they'll mirror it on the archive and it'll be great. Uh, you know, uh, let's not go too far down this rat hole right now. But, um, I know, of course, people are like, and do you, do you get told to take them down? And the answer is sure. But there are a bunch, one of the reasons I like ephemera, like, yeah, put up supermario.n64 on your site and wait about five minutes. Yeah, good job. But there's so many obscure, unloved, unknown programs, uh, magazines, periodicals, creations, MP3s, that have no advocate, that the person who did it may not even know that it ever existed again, or that doesn't have any reason for anybody to ever derive monetary value from it again. And that kind of stuff I really bend over backwards and give it the attention. Like if I sat here in my office here and was sitting here digitizing, oh, I don't know, let's go with something really lame. Let's say if I was sitting here like super digitizing, oh, what's something really boring? McCall's Magazine or uh, Cosmopolitan Magazine, a magazine that is distributed digitally is available everywhere and has an extremely active publisher who monetizes it, I'd be a dumbass. But if I, if somebody walks up to me and gives me an obscure furry comic that was made by hand in, in 1996 uh, and they've got a stack of 20 of them, there's no grant, there's no institution that's going to step forward and digitize that thing. They could never politically uh, negotiate it. They would never get the funding. And I'll say, all right, I'll see about digitizing this because I know otherwise it will never get done. Games yeah, but, tend to, uh, games sell that, themselves, right? You were saying that you like, you know, put up uh, Mario 64, you know, whatever, and it'll get archived. How do you deal? Like, do you get a lot of DMCA like takedowns? Um, people have, people send us, uh, love notes and we let them know we love them too. Then things aren't available on the archive. Um, generally you find that what companies don't like 
is, is when people do a search for a property and the property is available for free from someone else first. That's what they really, that's mostly what they don't like. So if um, uh, The Incredibles 2 comes out and you type Incredibles 2 in the, the, the search engines and instead of the showtimes for Incredibles 2, somebody tells you, come here and watch The Incredibles 2. They hate that. But they don't tend to go completely crazy over every weird old thing that ever existed that was ever published. Sometimes they do. Um, there's been an ownership battle over uh, Omni magazine was very popular. And then a group purchased Omni and said, take it down. But it turns out they didn't purchase Omni. They purchased a storage unit uh, that had Omni in it. And so another group fought them. And then we just kind of put our hands up and we're like, you, you boys figure this out. Um, but like Starlog is up. Nobody seems to care about Starlog being up. Maybe they will. And then it'll go down. But I mean, you know, like that's part of the nature of being in a world with utterly perpetual copyright, right? I mean, copyright is essentially, essentially forever. A thing created today will become public domain in at least 150 years. So that's perpetual copyright. We, we had Macintoshes and no electric cars in 1984, and that's only 30 years ago. So what's going to be in 150 years? What, gel what will the gelatinous cubes think of the mind meld version of this movie? Because <laughs> that's when it's going to become public domain. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I understand why we did it. I, I know why the United States became insane about copyright, but it does mean that it's very hard to function as a library. So one thing I'm kind of waiting to ask that I think is something that I, uh, I think everybody kind of wants to know is what are your, like, what are things that you're actively searching for that you haven't been able to find? Hmm. Let's see. So, um, so I am, uh, I personally am searching uh, Apple II commercial programs, but I am getting a lot of leads on those these days. There are multiple um, storage facilities that people are opening to me and to contemporaries of mine. So maybe, even though I, I'm always happy when those show up, I don't think they're in danger. Um, there is a lot of m potentially missing 1990s online culture. There's a lot of 1980s online culture. People who obsessively digitally hoarded message bases, forums, Fidonet groups, uh, echo chats, IRC, you know, like people who kept these things I'd love to have them, even if it was to stick them into a zip file in a dark object, just to know, just to know they'll persist. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, 
when I uh, did the DEF CON documentary, we shot 300 hours of footage, and that's all on the inside of DEF CON. And, you know, uh, an hour and 30 minutes of it shows up in the movie. And so uh, the, the staff signed off on what showed up on the final movie, like in terms of it came out and they went, yep, okay, that's the movie. But the other 299 hours, they have a full copy of all that footage, and I have a full copy of all that footage inaccessible on the archive so that in X amount of years, 10, 20, whatever arbitrary time, that stuff might become available again or be reused or whatever so that there's a record, even if people don't want that right now. So people will know what DEF CON was like from the inside of 2012. Um, you know, so, so I like having recordings and captures of things that people didn't know that there was any record left. And yeah. the digital world is extremely ephemeral. Like it's one thing when it's like a non transient thing like old posters old rave flyers old newsletters like those go in a box and then later we go oh wow box but then there's like performances or things like that where maybe somebody does a, a street performance well if i bumped into somebody who was like you know i've got like eight tapes that I did in the 1980s of street performers all through you know, the city I live in, because I would just sit there and record them. I'd be like, well, let's get those waves up, mofo. <laughs> um, you know, and then, then I'd just like, get that stuff up, find the, you know, find the reasons, find the stuff, you know? Like that's, that, that interests me. And, and every once in a while, somebody will surprise me. They'll upload a bunch of stuff and I'll be like, well, this is crazy. Like, I didn't know somebody kept all of this, whatever it may be, bootlegs of uh, uh, recordings that of events that happen or um, scans of documents where I'm like, wow, somebody kept the internal blank development docs, whatever blank is, you know, some company where you're like, oh my God, I didn't kept the development docs. You know, uh, we've, seen, we've seen leaks of like companies like AOL and Facebook where they have like their style guides uh, or uh, how to be a moderator. And of course they don't want that out at the time, yeah. but you know, in, in 10 years or even five years, it's, a, it's just amusing ancient. I recall, so, uh, I recall somebody purchased a machine that was uh, at Atari during the glory days. And um, on it was an apology letter that had been written to other staff about getting too um, drunk or something at a party and being inappropriate. Um, like, do you have random things like that? Are there more, more of that stuff available? I mean, certainly uh, there's plenty of cases where, uh, like somebody who grabs old hard drives or somebody who, um, uh, you know, like they might find weird jewels and strangeness, um, and bring it out, um, you know, like, it's funny because you go, like, so, so where follows the fetishization of the games industry and, and the making of games so follows 
industries. So you can get some really good ideas of how things can go with the games industry, like finding old memos or old design documents or finding pre-builds or, you know, like a really good example is put up thousands of magazine CD-ROMs from all the other video game magazines, computer magazines. And the funny part is that uh, the lead time uh, in the 90s for doing CD would be like four months. Like, so if you want your game to be a hit, it's got to come out in the beginning of December so it can get to the stores, which means you have to lock in the gold master by September if you want any chance of getting in line at the CD printing plant. And what you really want is for uh, an introduction of the game to come out for October or November before December, which means they lock down publication three months before. So suddenly, you've got to produce a version of your game that's limited in July and then finish working on the game so the can get out in September. This means that there's a lot of demos on computer games that are um, weird alternate versions of the games because they have enemies that didn't make it or uh, don't have things that did make it. And so if somebody sits down and goes through them, they will find these little jewels. And I, I, again, I'm mentioning this all. Well, like well, I said, I'm really crazy about the games industry, but this happens in everything, operating systems, magazines, uh, 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 music, you know, like recordings of songs before they became songs on the album or rare performances where a person covered a song you wouldn't have expected them to cover or they flipped out, um, you know, extensive uh, alternate versions of what we think of as the media reality. So that's, that's like, that's kind of like why I like it. But again, I really stress like games are so well handled. We have so many eyeballs on games. And we just saw this recently with the Pokemon games, right? Because some equipment got sold in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, I that mean, happened with the Pokemon Silver and Gold demo that just came out recently that was like all new Pokemon that like no one had ever seen before and all sorts of levels and, and different features that didn't make it. And it's like it's like you're playing a game that, like it's like you're playing an extended version of a game that you played as a kid, which is like I feel like interesting with a lot of the stuff you're saying too with like demos and other extended features and development copies of things that nobody knew about when they finally come out it's like you get to relive the same sort of excitement of discovering those things in real time as you would have when they came out you know yeah i mean it's 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 like um we think of certain media properties or creations existing purely among themselves and then you discover that somebody had like outtakes or uh alternate writings uh, a really obscure example do it here is uh if any of you are if you or your listeners are avail aware of um the 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 musical rent the the creator died just before it premiered um, and his estate was given to the New York Public Library Performing Arts Group by his family. And so they went through the, the gentleman's um, discs, the floppy discs, 
which had his writings for the play. And Word saves the last five revisions of a document. So by interpreting those Word documents, they were able to find alternate lyrics, alternate writing, uh, cases where he wrote a heated letter to his agent, then deleted it and rewrote it as a nice letter. Um, like all of this additional knowledge of like, oh, he chose these words, but he was thinking he was going to go with these words. And, and we wouldn't have had that with previous um, creators. And so if games are important, then there are so many interesting pieces of lore to pick out from the games by finding things like in-development versions or half-made versions. And there are some people who will go to extreme lengths to find or understand obscure things. You know, there's, there's a current weird situation. I don't know how long it's going to last. There's monetization in YouTube teardowns of things, like generating the kind of content where you pop it on and a person talks about a specific Pokemon for 45 minutes. Like people actually want that. And that hunger for that content means that it becomes the kind, like it literally means there's a TV show for that content. That's really interesting. Uh, we did have a question from Russian so, Cowboy 1337, and they asked, what is the most ridiculous thing you've seen submitted to text files? To text files? Um, let's see, submitted to text files. So, so, um, so textfiles.com uh, has had a bunch of people send me self-written text files and I'm trying to, th like, like, there might be one or two that I think particularly amusing. But, like, a lot of times, anybody who's writing it for me, it, look, frankly, you've run out of a lot of publishing options. If, like, you're, you're way down there. You're down at the textfiles.com. I'm going to write a text file in 1997 or, or uh, sorry, 2007. You know, and it's good, and the writing is going to be off the hook because it's going to be like like how to get a free shake at McDonald's, and it's like this is very low end. <laughs> but then, but then um, sometimes somebody will send like recordings of things I didn't know there were recordings of. Um, it's hard to say. Like like ridiculous is a weird phrasing for me because I I uh, celebrate in the weirdness to the point that it's not even like like the stuff that's come by on archive.org um, has been like just eye-wateringly awful breathtakingly amazing and textfiles.com is mostly me collecting the text files from other sources. Um, sometimes people would send me a zip and it would have like 500 text files and I'd run a matcher against it and like 100 would be new and I'd go look at it and it would be like these really weird writings about uh, Apple II stuff that I didn't even know someone wrote about. I'm sorry that quite my answer is not as adequate. It's hard for me to think of it as, like I don't really have a memory 
on the textfiles.com side of getting a really good, you know, eye-wateringly insane thing. I have watched text files on textfiles.com get um, an enormous amount of attention. So for instance, there's a file called um, Koalas Are Little Bitches. <laughs> and it was submitted to me by a teacher who a kid wrote it for his class. He was animal. And the kid obviously didn't want to do it. So he wrote one of those essays, it's like totally go for the F, but you go for the F with like both middle fingers up backwards. And um, it's, it was called Koalas Are Little Bitches. They're no good. I hope they all die and fall on whatever. And it just, I put it up. And every like three or four years, somebody on Reddit would discover it. And it would just spike and like 50,000 people would read it. And they would have very strong on koalas or little bitches. My favorite, of course, being the conspiracy theory that it was not written by a kid. It was written to gain clicks. And I'm like, that is a very tough proposition in 1999 when it was given <laughs> to me. That the kid was like, oh, yeah, this is totally um, so, so I, I've had a couple cases. Uh, the other one is, um, the, the sex with dogs fact. There's, there's one in there. There's <laughs> one about having sex with cars. Oh, nice. Um, oh, and man, there's like, what I wanted tonight. and so people like people will link to it out of context and be like, I, like, it, I understand, like, I don't want level of, like, I disapprove, this is awful. Because if you seek that, the world's got buckets of that for you. But um, they, some of them tend to take it as like a, this should not exist. And so they kind of like launch into like a, every once in a while, there's some group that threatens to take textfiles.com down because they're like, you know, like, this is terrible. We will take them down. We will commit whatever OPSEC or whatever the hell they're talking about. And every time I see that threat go by, I'm like, uh, time to update the. Um, so um, that's actually a so good point of taking things down like so say I've purchased a domain and previously that domain has uh, hosted some gnarly stuff on there that I don't want associated with my new domain yeah um, what 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 uh, could I do to like uh, make sure that that history isn't there and how do you feel about producing uh, about about maintaining the archive of whatever used to be there so not speaking in the guise of an employee my attitude pick up for cheap the pink house on the corner that was known as the crack fuck house you really shouldn't be surprised that people keep showing up uh for crack or that people refer to your nice house as the crack fuck house so there's one level of that like rebuying a dead terrifying domain earns its own rewards but 
One of the things about the archive, fundamentally, is that it was started by Brewster Kale as a experiment. He had been running what was essentially a Nielsen rating. It's called Alexa Internet. It came out in like 1993, 94, and they would browse all these websites. And then they would say, uh, here's how many people read them. Here's how many people are um, uh, browsing it and what machines they're using. And people paid money for, for this service to go, wow, I'm ranked 50, you know, 5,400. Um, and so uh, Amazon bought Alexa. And that's how Brewster made his initial big money. And what he did was he made a contract. Because they were looking at these sites, they were archiving them. You know, they were taking copies of the websites so they could analyze them for these reports. And he said, I want to continue to get those files. And he started this nonprofit library. And then for like four or five years, he was getting all this data. And it had gotten up to like a terabyte, which was a lot at the time. And he's like, I don't know what to do with this. And that's when they started to come up with the Wayback Machine. And in the interim years, the Wayback Machine has been up and has like caused all of these reactions. And people are delighted. People are skeptical. They're angry. And people have a lot of very intense questions about what about this contingency? What about that? And I think they would understand more if they realized we're, we are unquestionably winging it as we have been winging it for two decades. Like we just discover like, oh, is that a problem? For instance, we would discover that like companies, uh, security companies would look at old websites to try to find the first occasion known malware by looking for it inside of our, our grabs to be able to prove this malware existed five years ago. Uh, or that this technique was being used. Or somebody uses it to win a court case by proving that since we archived the site here and this company claimed this, even though they deleted it two years later, there's proof. And we've had to send people to courts to testify that the Internet Archive is a functioning archive and that what's being said there. So we're now, when we started this, there was no world where you would reuse websites Websites are forever. You, you have uh, pinkpussypalace.com. You're going to have that time. Why would you ever not have that? And so when people started to do it, or I should say when we started to get further along, in, we created this robots.txt policy that has been there for 20 years that says basically, if the robots.txt says that the site shouldn't be accessible, we will respect the current owner of the website. This is not, this is not always what people want. And at some point, about a year ago, I think, we made the decision to say, we're not going to respect that if it's a government or military site. We will not respect the robots.txt directive of, uh, of those sites, and we will show them always. So we, we changed our policy. Um, we used to hold on to the web data for six months before putting it up. Now we don't wait. We put it up in 60 seconds. If you archive a site, it's browsable on, on the archive in 60 seconds. That's a shift. And um, what you're talking about is a situation that's one of many. And I, I, Did you I have to cover no the uh, 
Did you want to cover the, the robot's text policy and sort of what it is and how it works? Well, I mean, functionally, the archive is trying to be a If you set your robots.txt on your website to say the Internet Archive cannot use this site, um, we will not display it in the Wayback. So, Historically as well, or just from now on? We've been... Oh, okay, wait. So in our history since we started, but you're saying until that robots.txt goes away, we'll not show Okay, so like you can put it up and then take it down, and you guys still keep it, right? I don't. I'm not imbued to officially say. Try us. Um. So so uh, we have that policy, and it's intended to be a relatively good neighbor. And of course, because the internet is now a ridiculous roller derby of shit, uh, there are edge cases popping up here and there, and people are. This is what's going on. And again, the thing I said before, non-facetiously, about people arrive 30 seconds in and assume they've been thinking about it for 30 seconds. People come in, they look at the, the, the executive summary of what they think the robots.txt is, and they think that this is a policy we enacted at 2 p.m. today and that we've made it, you know, you know like we're, we're pulling in a billion URLs a week or something. Like we're archiving numbers that are scary numbers. We're adding, the archive through all of our things is adding about terabytes of data a day. Wait, um, say that again, how many, how many terabytes? About 17, I believe. I don't know how much of it or not. But we're, in, we're pulling in about 17 terabytes a day that I last knew that statistic being real. Um, so we're constantly archiving things and compressing it and putting it in and taking, you know, what people are sending us and uploading and people will upload, you know, one gigabyte movies or, or, um, you know, 500 megabyte ISOs and, you know, we'll have it all up. And, um, and, and, and I think people don't know about those huge. They also don't know how relatively small the staff is. There's only about 125 people who work at the archive, and that includes everybody, all the staff, all the support staff, all the scanning centers, of which there's about 14. Um, so what I always love is when people like, you know, to me, they'll say, like, you should do this with software. And I'm like, do you realize I'm the entire software curation department? <laughs> like... <laughs> If you talk to me on the phone, then the software curation department, like no actions will be taken. So, so we only have like a handful of people working on the Wayback Machine and its engineering. We only have a handful of people working on various other applications. And people will say like, oh, just do this. And it'll be like, you do know Google has a, a dungeon in Romania with 4,000 people doing that, right? Like, they think it just happens, right? And they don't realize, like, there are nice people who get up in the morning with coffee and sit down at a desk at Facebook and Google and then watch, like, poodles shit into each other's mouths and click it and turn it off all day so you don't have to see it. 
and they think, oh, it just happens. It's clean. And that's like, no, it is terrible. So we do what we can, but we're always going to run into edge cases and people will come to us with edge cases and I get it. Um, it's totally, I mean, you know, it's totally uh, uh, understandable that people will say, but what about this? Why don't you? And why don't you be brave? And I'm like, <laughs> being brave is like every day in this place. Dude, so, I, I remember when you had the uh, that code, the key, the the DVD key to, to decode yeah. the DVDs on text. I mean, that's brave, man. No one should give you shit about being brave. Well, people have different opinions because, again, you know, people just. Um, uh, are there, I mean, I like it when we do, I like it when the world is nice. Um, I like it personally. I prefer where somebody comes to me and says like, um, I have 75 PDFs of some really beautifully made magazine from the 1920s. And we put it up in Pirate Adventures, and I'm like, oh, this is great. But the world isn't always great. And so sometimes people will be like, well, what happens if you do this? And I'm like, or what happens if I do this for you? And I go like, well, the last 70 sites you tried to do it on weren't able to do it. I don't think we are. And they're like, you have failed no, your us. mission. Oh. Hmm? I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. That's okay. I had a quick question. I had a quick question about. Uh, the, I literally the thought he was saying, I literally thought that he was saying that my answer needed to end immediately. Like, stop. Stop going into your. Like, that's the kind of hard hitting podcast journalism I want to see. Just stop what you're saying. You're filthy. You're telling these lies. No, <laughs> Stella's a 75-pound pit bull that thinks she's a lap dog and just tried to call him on a lap. <laughs> I, 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 I understand your problems, I'd say. First pit bull problems. All right, so you were asking about the emulator. He said yeah, yeah. happily, dabbing, uh, his, uh, dabbing his forehead. <laughs> I think the, the, the DOSBox, DocsBox emulation in the browser is like totally awesome, right? Being able to run old software straight away. Without setting up, yeah, that's my favorite stuff. kind of question. Okay, but no, I, and with it, how can if I have old software, how can I get it into that emulator without making you do lots of work? Um, so we were under a huge challenge when we did the software emulation. It was a double challenge. First was just making it work, and I remember the day we got it working, it was like a friggin' miracle. Um. Then the problem was we needed to dovetail it into the Internet Archive's somewhat interesting backend, such that you could notify it that it should play the emulator instead of something else. And that turned out to be not my favorite. And it, the documentation for it is a little bit non-intuitive, and it's really been on my list to like make a better how-to. But in short, for the DOS emulator, which you specifically mentioned, other you make a zip file with the file system you're trying to bring in. You upload it to the archive and 
set its media type to software and you set uh, three settings. The first one is emulator, which you set to DOSBox. The second thing is emulator underscore exe, which you set to zip because you're uploading a zip file. And then emulator underscore start, which is the file in the zip file it should treat as the first thing to run. This is not intuitive. If you go look at the ones that boot, you can see this. Like we make sure that it's all viewable. So you can see these settings that I did and why they um, I have coded scripts to do this all for me because it is tedious and boring. But every once in a while, um, somebody contributes a work, somebody figures it all out and contributes a working new emulated item which I have scripts that notice, and it puts them into a collection called Software Library Contribution. And that collection, I then go through and go, yep, they made this DOS thing run, and I pop it into the final collections. And so that saves me the most time. Um, people, have, uh, people have a lot of interesting, um, you know, neat programs out there. Um, the generally like famous one, uh, the cracks, the, the, the commercial programs, we tend to have a lot of those up unless they're being sold on Steam or GOG, and then I tend to not put them up. Just because, you know, the, the, the emulator is fun, but you can't, like, the emu emulating you, um, Ultima in the browser is never going to be the same as, like, the really good Steam version that's been, like, totally tested and works in all these environments and you know like that's a better product and it's like eight bucks and if you don't have the eight bucks you don't deserve to play ultima so so i i try to make sure that we're not conflicting with somebody true to honest method of making this stuff bootable but then people will put up like i wrote a program when i was 17 and it was a really fun space program and then they put that up and so that will be uh, something I love being a part of. You know, people who wrote something 20 years ago and they just need a little help or they do it themselves and they put up a program they wrote and it works and you can play their old program and they're just delighted that they can just send friends a URL, which was the whole reason I did it in the first place, by the way. I wanted it that you could go, hey, remember BlizzFat? Oh, just go to archive.org slash BlizzFat. There it is. Uh, and you're just playing it in two seconds. You're not like, so here's what you got to do. First, you have to go find the DOSBox download thing. Then you have to go to this ROM site. Now, in the ROM site, you're going to be hacked, so you want to use it on a laptop that you don't own. Then you put it on a USB stick and clean the USB stick, take it back home. Then you got to put it into the ROMs folder. And it's like that for everything, right? I just wanted to, like, I would love to play Dig Dug right now, or more accurately, Mr. Do. Um, you can just go to this URL, and you're playing Dig, Do, you know, Dig Dug. You're playing Mr. Do. You're playing... Uh, so, you know, Mortal Kombat or whatever. Like, I love the idea that that's Math instantaneous. Blaster. Right, hmm? Hugo, uh, Math Blaster, Hugo's House of Horrors, like, there's so many- Everyone's got there. their thing. Everyone's got the thing that, that, that they're like, uh, they press the key and then suddenly flip, they're, they're nine years old and they're banging away at an apple while their mom's making cooking in the other room. 
I mean, everyone's got that with them with their early software. And so having that stuff up there is really great. Um, but yeah. Um, so do you have any old art styles? That you, prefer? you said that you started with a Commodore pet. Did you prefer like Petsky, Rip, ASCII, ANSI? Or some of the old art <laughs> styles you liked? Um, so uh, because I did a documentary on it, I really liked the ANSI art scene. And working with Radman at the time on he made it a point of trying to collect every obscure art pack that had been released from the period of like, whatever it was, like 92 to like the mid 2000s when they stopped really being monthly and they started becoming rare. Like he talked to people in France who had downloaded things, he talked to people who had like old hard drives and started to build up collections of these things. And then there's 16colors.net, where he's produced this really amazing interface to allow you to browse old ANSI art. So ANSI art kind of holds it for me. Um, I, I have a general interest in working with viewers and reproducibility so that when you look at old art where possible, you experience it as the person intended it. And that becomes very hard. And there's like levels of fractal difficulty that start to freak you out. For example, in ANSI art packs, a traditional thing they would do is when they wanted to put rag messages into the art, they would put them black on black, black text on black. Um, so you would only have to see them if you knew them, where they were making fun of other people. So when people convert them to PNG, they look great, but you don't see the RAG messages anymore. So you want the RAG messages to be available somehow, maybe converting the whole thing to a monochrome version that you can flip between, you know? Like you gotta that's do some, that work. That's some discreet shit talking that I never even knew about, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing, right? And I mean, your life isn't, if you look at the scale of your life, the amount I just improved it is going to be a very, very tiny percentage. Like I did not just, I did not just teach you that like swiping this twice gets you into like Subway for free. But um, I definitely know that a lot of the software out there, like there's Apple II programs that were Mockingboard compatible, which means you only ever heard that music if you booted it up on a Mockingboard which means that you might not be aware. I've had this happen to a program called Mr. Robot. And if you boot up Mr. Robot in an emulator with the Mockingboard turned on, it's a whole different soundtrack. It's a whole different piece of music written that I, you would have never heard of in your entire life because of that. So, so like there's uh, these pieces of life where uh, people want to think they're the experts of their own history. And so they go like, I owned a whatever Mustang, and therefore I'm an expert on owning that Mustang. And it's like, not always. Sometimes there's stuff you don't know about. And I don't think you're lesser of a person for not knowing it, but by keeping like as much of the original stuff around and by working with people to try to rescue it and make it so that the viewers are aware of these contingencies, you allow a little more access 
into these things that might not otherwise be there. I'll give you a weird one that just popped up in the last week. It's more gaming stuff, but oh, damn, son. So people will send me or people have up on there like old press release and old like released at E3 or GDC or, you know, trade show stuff. And Sony put up like kind of a, I think it's like a 1999 or 2000, I could be getting the year wrong, like E3, three CD pack that was given away to press at the time. And it basically, you pop it into your machine and you can browse it because it's all HTML files. And it's just a bunch of like, you know, blowing smoke about how awesome Sony is and we're gonna come out with new things for the PlayStation and so on. But, but, but in there, uh, somebody just discovered were EPS files, encapsulated postscript, which does not slide off the tongue or into the browser. You have to convert them. And when he converted them, he found out it was a bunch of promotional photos taken inside of Square Enix while they were working on Final Fantasy. Nice. But it was wow. like this thing where like they would have never found it. So he put them up on Twitter and people are figuring out like, who's this person? Oh, look at this character that's up on the wall. That character didn't show up. And, and they're, they're deriving additional value because somebody thought, what's these EPS files? And he converted them. And a lot of them are just better screenshots of games that have already come out. But then there were these weird photos just from something. They had recordings of the, of the piece. Um, you know. What was your uh, favorite BBS software? And also maybe your your favorite zines that were influential to you. So I wrote a BBS package called Ferret BBS, and Ferret BBS was based off of Waffle. And Waffle was my favorite BBS because I knew the creator. It was super flexible and it was fun. It had a real sense of fun about it. It was so well written. Um, so so for me, it's Waffle. Although when I rewrote Waffle uh, and called it Ferret. Ferret had stupid features that only a 16-year-old would come up with, like pressing Control-R would reverse the text that you had written. Um, and if you tried to talk to the sysop and the sysop wasn't home, it would pop you into a custom ELISA program and <laughs> try to convince you that it was a player. And I would print out, I had a printer going, so it would kick to a printer and the printer would print out the conversation that happened. And some people would talk to it for hours and be like, what's wrong with you, man? You're so repetitive. I'd, I'd be outside. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a zine, the zine, okay, so the zine that I mostly work for and met the creator of Fact Sheet 5, which was the zine of zines. So for me, Fact Sheet 5 was always my favorite because this one guy, Mike Gunderloy, would write, would read and write hundreds of reviews a month of like, you know, all of the program, all the, um, the, the, the zines that were available. Like they're an incredibly valuable chronicle of like all the zines that came out from like, uh, I want to say 1988, 89, through to like the mid 1990s, like it's a, it's a, it's a work of art. Uh, we really should digitize them and put them online because they're really just amazing. And they then they become unwitting checklists for zine culture. Can I find those zines? 
um, again. So I have somebody online now who has been uploading, no joke, thousands of zines to the archive. There's a zines collection. He has uploaded many thousands and he doesn't really discriminate. So it's like game zines, feminist zines, queer zines, um, you know, uh, racist zines, rock zines, uh, computer zines. Like he doesn't care. Like if it's if it's stapled, he he puts it up, and uh, as a result, it's like we in the last year and a half, two years, we added full text search, so we do OCR through it, and then you can look for a given uh, piece of text and find which zine has that phrase, and that's that's increased the value of what's on the archive, you know, incredibly. So so that's been an improvement that's happened. What did you think That's of DEF CON when you're doing all that recording? So I stopped going to DEF CON after, but um, at the time, I enjoyed going through God mode. Like, you, I could walk into any room. I could go anywhere with the cameras. And uh, it's just so big now. Like, when I, for the first DEF CON I went to was DEF CON 7. And then I got to be like, DEFCON 21, I think, was the one, the last one I attended, where I was just like, I don't care about security. Like, I never did. <laughs> so that, that, that industry doesn't really interest me. Be a hacker and then become a security professional. It just, like, bores me to tears. I don't drink. There's 60% of the value gone right there. Um, so... So for me, it was like, I'm done. But I, I also got old. I mean, I'm in my 40s now. I mean, if you're 17 and you go to a DEF CON, woo, have a, I mean, you're just like, this can't possibly exist. It's like MAGFest, right? I mean, you go to MAGFest, it's like 18. It must be like Willy Wonka has heroin. I mean, um, <laughs> come with me and you'll see the fascination of a really high. Um, but, uh, oh, you so, hang out um, with iWiz as well, huh? Yeah, so, I mean... If you remember, I, um, attrition.org used to be a mirror for exploits once upon a time. Old people yeah. might remember. Um, have you thought about, uh, like, doing that kind of thing with the snapshots? Like, tagging when something was defaced or something for the that hacker-style, you know, interest? So... I, I have a ridiculously generalized answer to that question. There are a variety of amazing things that are on the archive that would benefit heavily from an outside person with knowledge dedicated to extracting that value from the stacks. Like, there's a lot of things out there that would really work well when I think of it. I'm thinking of, like, like um, um, run an analysis against all the zines looking for this kind of phrase, put it up, and then make this kind of remixed art because you were able to extract every one of these. Um, there's a guy named Rob Manuel. He made a, 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 a bot called Your Computer, and it goes through English computer magazines on the archive, takes interesting pages automatically, and puts them up in Twitter. And so it's posting it. It's just like this nostalgia factory for people. And... 
I would love for people to run analysis against, do AI runs against it, AI teaching. I love the idea of somebody doing analysis to the Wayback Machine to be able to detect defacements or to detect when something's used. You know, like I, but it won't be the archive. The archive doesn't have that. Like we don't have a second building nestled among trees where people are going, what if, and walking out, you know, vaping while looking out over the sunset. Like we just don't have any of that world. And so that's going to have to come from outside. Somebody's going to have to go, you know, I looked at, you know, 50,000 of your music files. Blah, I know this. Or I'm able to detect whether or not a movie is a, this kind of a movie or not because I analyzed all your stuff. Um, I tried some experiments where I would take like CD-ROM ISOs, download them, extract all the images and make a gallery. And when it worked, it was great. When it was porn, it was horrifying. And I also would miss a lot because there'd be your image formats or hidden behind, and I couldn't find them. And I just couldn't spend the time. But a person might do that. They might start to do indexing and figure out like, oh, here's like somebody who made a shareware search engine by blasting through the software collection and making data sets. That'd be a really amazing, valuable thing. If they were the files.bbs off of the shareware CDs and be able to produce like this large thing where you could find every one of this program. It's like knock yourself out, but it probably won't be the archive who does it. And, and so we're just going to focus on making things stay up, which is a very hard job, believe it or not. I mean, just in terms of, you know, it's less than it used to be, but for a while we were like losing a pallet of hard drives a, a month just dying and um, you know, we weren't losing data, we have redundancy, but we were like blowing through, you know, we, we had this deal, we'd send back the pallet because they were literally under, still under warranty. Um, <laughs> I think maybe we're, I think, uh, sorry, maybe that's something our, some of our listeners might be interested in, uh, you know, if you work at Amazon and have access to Glacier and you like the internet archive, you know, Make a mirror. Well, we've had we've had some offers to. I mean, certainly the pricing of of Glacier is a. I'm going to kill any potential of working with them, but uh, Glacier is a uh, a gold standard ripoff. Like it makes total sense for certain kinds of information, I guess. But man, that extraction data, that extraction price is murderous. Like it's really Roach Motel pricing. It's like, you know, like a cent a gigabyte to drag it, to put it in, and then like a thousand bucks to haul it out. Like you'll feel it. You'll feel the pinch. Now, if you've got multiple whatevers, I mean, but even three cents a terabyte uh, per month adds up if you're uploading piles of data or three cents a gigabyte, my apology. That's like 30 or whatever it is, you know, 300 bucks or whatever it is, a month per terabyte. And the Internet Archive, for example, has 45,000 terabytes. You know, like, we couldn't do that. But um, uh, we have, you know, we have funding drives. We have um, events going on that we do. Like, it's pretty, you know, we, we make our noise. We make our, 
We have our end of year fundraising it, it, for, for the benefit of people. It's archive.org slash donate. We take cryptocurrency. We take regular cash. You know, it's a nonprofit. It's a true nonprofit, not just something that's not profitable, but it's a real nonprofit. And uh, so it's a tax deductible donation. So it's a real play. You know, that's what we do. That's good. I think oh, yeah. now is a really good time to like segue into how can people get involved? Do you have a wish list of projects that you would like to see started by fans of the Internet Archive? Yeah, well, let me just let me just reach out to Libnull and say, Bitcoin, give it all to us. My boss loves Bitcoin. You know, send that right along. We love it. So you uh, take the my Bitcoin I've been collecting me. too. What now? We can take these beanie babies off my hands too. They got to be worth something. <laughs> how many? How many you got? How many are we gonna? Are they, any of the good ones, or are these all the second beanie babies? What must the mark? How many suicides have occurred from the beanie babies? I don't know, man. I've been looking for for an appraisal of my chicken nugget beanie baby that I have. So one day like, I'll uh, donate it. I want to know. Like, it's a really, like, I'm not going to start doing the thing of, like, typing. Man, when did the Beanie Baby fad die? How long has it been? How are some of the names who were, like, day in, day out, writing the crapstick, uh, hype-piling uh, updates on the Beanie Baby situation doing? And which, you know, and after you ask them that, Ask them if you can get a discount with two burgers instead of one. Um, so anyway, um, in terms of how people can help the Internet Archive. So uh, the, the Internet Archive is essentially functioning extremely large disk drive. And it's functioning with a motivation towards Internet culture, although we've expanded into other areas of mass media culture. Part of it is one way to help us is if you go to um, archive.org slash web, there's a save page now feature. So if you see something that you think should be saved, you can go right there and, 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 and dump that URL and we will save it. So, so that's like very helpful, more than you would think. Like if you see something where you're like, this lasts more than five seconds, great, dump it to the archive. Um, I've got, a Discord. Um, people come onto my Discord and sometimes help me like track things down. Like they'll boot up a thousand um, uh, MS DOS programs and tell me where they're not booting properly, um, or they'll help me like define and categorize a set of uh, uh, music to go. This is all punk. This is all rock or whatever they're doing. Some people do that. But also, sometimes it's just a matter of going through what you have and saying, you know, I don't think this is anywhere, this piece of digital ephemera, and contacting me, or even better, just uploading it straight to the Internet Archive, putting in as much metadata as you're comfortable, you know, describing what it, look, what it is and why you put it up and why you think it's important, along with anything else you can stand to put in, and just uploading it. And we'll take it and, and we'll appreciate it. So like, that's like really the way to help us. Um, we have people who come in and do volunteer uh, development 
A lot of that stuff really depends on being in the San Francisco Bay Area, though. Like, I work with a lot of remote, interesting volunteers to do a lot of work, but it's very specific work that I'm doing. Um, and also, like, just letting people know that we exist, which, of course, you think everybody knows about it, but they don't. And just letting people know there's this place that's saving copies of everything and, and adding terabytes of media a day and, and, and making all these things available. You know, like you could spend the rest of your life just reading our magazine section. It's already past 108,000 individual issues of magazines. I mean, you know, you're set. Your schedule's set. Um, there's books. There's millions of books, millions of audio. Um, you know that that's that's really how you help us we're doing you know we're spending 40 to 80 hours a week here making this place better and keeping it running if people aren't using it then what's it all for that's what that's that's the best way to help us yeah and then i act, i knew about internet archive for a while but i didn't go back until attrition actually linkedin and twitter and He's a big fan, I know, because he uh, uses it for a lot of his research on his articles. Yeah. I mean, people are pretty good about crediting us. People are pretty good at mentioning, like, oh, I found this on the piece here, and I screenshot it. Um, so on the whole, it uh, it's known. But... Yeah. Uh, so the best way to help is donate. Uh, yeah. advertise and spend more than 30 seconds researching something. So minimum yeah, of a minute, please. Please do at least one to three minutes. At three, you win an Internet Scholar Award, so it's worth it. Try to, try to use those 180 seconds wisely. How's that Malcolm Gladwell theory, right? Three minutes? Yeah, about three minutes. That's, about, that's how much most guys on... Boom! I put it at the end! <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like, is there any other ways people can get in contact with you about stuff, or any other maybe methods that might make it easier for people to like upload or get involved? Because I feel like when we say like, oh, just upload well, it. I, I have I, I have that four word suicide note. My my DMs are open. Um, also, uh, I have Jason at textfiles.com, J-S-C-O-T-T at archive.org. Uh, you know, you can reach me through all these different methods. That's awesome. All right, yeah, it's, um, it's 11.30 here in the East Coast, and I think that we've kind of covered a lot of what we were going to cover, and we should probably just end it so we don't go too off the rails, because I know that we can. Oh, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure half of your guys are dead. Half your men are dead. No, <laughs> bro, bro, we're all here. Um, but yeah, no, thanks very much, Jason, for coming on and, and talking to us and taking the time out of your, you know, what we now know is an incredibly busy day um, of doing all this stuff and, and helping the internet out. And we really can't thank you enough for coming in and taking your time to, you know, actually come here and, and share your insights uh, about everything. Absolutely. And it was a, it was a joy. And, uh, and I'm glad that uh, the impulse to contact me, this is what I discovered doing documentaries for years, was people would be like, oh, you're never going to get blank. And I'm like, you know, did you ask? Like, a lot of the people who are famous, quote unquote, 
are because when people would contact them about collaborating or interviews or whatever, they wouldn't say no. That's how they became known. So ask because you're just another opportunity for them. So yeah. that's how I that's how I interviewed John Romero. It was like, <laughs> you know, I just contacted him and he was like, hey man, you know, whatever. So been to his house and uh, you know, done some collaborations with him because he was just like, Oh, it's such a pleasure to meet you finally. I know your stuff. And who knew, right? Um, I have a very special uh you know, like I'm 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 happy because I'm like one of I think I would have liked five people that like John Romero and John Carmack follow on Twitter. <laughs> it's mostly like be it's because I do what I believe in and I communicate, you know. What I do matters to me, and I try to share that enthusiasm. So, never be afraid to ask. So I was so glad. I was so glad. No, out of nowhere, it was just, hey, you ought to be on our podcast. Sometime. <laughs> and I'm like, the blood this time is now, mofo. And, um, <laughs> that's how it became now. Hell yeah! Well, yeah. Thanks very much for coming out, and everybody, thanks for thanks for you know listening, thanks for chatting. Um, and thanks for getting yourself, uh, you're subjecting yourself to a Turing test with our NFO file earlier. Um, so mm. back on Sunday, uh, for our sort of like off topic kind of supplementary stream. So everybody who's in the chat oh. who wants to talk more, what, what's up? I got, I got one other piece of detail that you guys will be able to buy. So, so, um, I had a heart attack, like a put in and that was fine but one of the side effects was that if I feel quote unquote a little funny I should probably visit the ER so like once or twice in the last year again nothing secondary or bad I just would go in and just be like hey I feel a little funny and they'd go like well let's look at your vitals you're fine and I would go so last night I felt a little funny and this morning and I was like oh man I don't want to go to the ER because then I'm going to miss this podcast so <laughs> I went to the ER, but I just kept pushing all the doctors because I was like, I gotta get out of here, man. I gotta so they, I was able to slam through this hospital in like four hours. I was like, did you get the test? Am I fine? Goodbye. And, uh, and so anyway, so that was my big, that was, that was me. I still, I just noticed because I still have the, uh, I still have the, the hospital wristband on my arm. Oh my God. So, We're glad you didn't die on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. No, I try to have, no, what, what, oh, but, but maybe, maybe it's like the sneakers. This would be the most valuable MP3 traded on the net. <laughs> the final Jason Scott interview. Jason Scott EOF.MP3 would become <laughs> the most popular traded wear on the torrents. So, you know, that's exactly <laughs> it. Well, thank you very much for, for everything, and we're glad that you're okay. And, um, yeah. But- <laughs> and uh yeah so Andrew, um you know hit us up on twitter if you have any questions hit jason up on twitter or discord or yep. watch his streams listen to his podcast go on his site download things do all this stuff yep. thank you everybody and, re- and remember and remember remember the slogan thug crowd it's dying for <laughs> it's a cardiac arrest of its own all right see you guys bye <laughs>